Beginning in verse 1, God's word says, In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs, and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps, or go back ten steps? And Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back ten steps, by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. At that time, Merodach, Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasured house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his army, all that was in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They came from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to the Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not? But there will be peace and security in my days. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and his might and all he made, the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers and Manasseh his son reigned in his place. Let's pray. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. So would you now speak through your word to encourage, exhort, and even bring people to new faith in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you know that on November 26, 1994, there was a featured matchup in the state of Texas. The number two team in the state, the Plano Plano East Panthers, were going to play the undefeated number team three team in the state, the Tyler John Lions. For the first half, the game was close, but the second half eventually led to Tyler blowing the game open, and with three minutes left, they scored another touchdown, taking the score to 41-17. to 
for all intents and purposes, the game was over. They didn't even send their starters back in, so Plano quickly went down the field and scored, but it didn't matter. Even though they missed the extra point, they're still up 41-23 with two minutes or so left. Plano gets an onside kick. They go down, and they get it, and they score another touchdown. Get two-point conversion, 41-31, but, I mean, Tyler's getting a little nervous, but it's a 10-point lead, and now just barely under two minutes. Second onside kick, and they get it again. And they go down and they score again and miss the extra point. So now it's 41-37. They've come back all this way. And they go for the third onside kick. And the funny thing is, the kicker had not even been the kicker till that week. The regular kicker was kicked off the team, no pun intended. Well, he kicks off. They get the third onside kick in a row. They go down and they score and they take the lead in less than three minutes. They went down from... 41 to 17 to now they're leading 44-41. As Yogi Berra, the manager, not the little bear, said, it's not over until it's over. This morning we come to the last chapter of the life of King Hezekiah. And he's been a king who's been praised because he faithfully served God. He got rid of the high places that so many kings of Judah before did not take care of. He's walked in God's ways, with all his heart. And yet sadly, as we come to the end of his life, we get mixed signals about the priorities in Hezekiah's life. In fact, there's four different ambassadors that come to him. And sometimes from Hezekiah, we see actions that honor God. And sometimes we see actions that seem to be focused on self. First, we have in verses 1 through 3, uh, an ambassador who makes a pronouncement of death. And then we see Hezekiah's prayer of response. If you bulletin, you'll see these four points as we go through them. But here, this first one, it begins with Hezekiah becoming very sick. So sick they believe he'll die. Now there's a little ambiguity how this event relates to what happens in chapter 18 and 19 before. Often the Bible is written in their historical books in a chronological fashion in order of what the events occurred, but this does not always occur. So if you read the four Gospels, sometimes Matthew may put a story in a different place than Luke, not because they had anything wrong, but they are making a different emphasis. And even books and movies today, they're growing along, and then the scene fades, and they show you something before or something after, so it'll all make sense. In this case... It talks about in verse 1, it was in those days that Hezekiah became sick. Well, what days? Well, was it after the Assyrians were sent back, or was it before? Well, he will make a promise later that the Assyrians won't conquer them. So it seems, maybe a little bit later, and as well, Hezekiah will have treasures to give to the Babylonians while they come. Well, earlier we saw in chapter 18, Hezekiah emptied the treasuries to Assyria. So, in my opinion, it's most likely these events occurred before 18 or 19, or in the middle of them, but we ultimately don't really know. Whenever the sickness happened, God sends Isaiah the prophet to come and warn him to set his house in order, for he is going to die. Now, this is an early and tragic death. If you look at 2 Kings 18.2, you know Hezekiah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 29 years. So that means if he's going to be promised 15 more years in a little bit, he is right now 39 or 40 years old. 
He's in the prime of his life. And he is about to die. And as we've read about Hezekiah, he does what he often does. He turns to God in prayer. And notice Hezekiah's prayer. As he weeps, he pleads, Please, God, remember how I walked faithfully with my whole heart, doing what is good in your sight. This is the anguish cry of Psalm 102, 23-24. God, you've broken my strength in mid-course. Lord, you've shortened my days. Take me not away in the midst of my days. You'll hear Hezekiah's in the middle of his life and he's saying, God, I've been faithful. Will you give me a normal life? And Hezekiah is requesting God to remember how he walked faithfully. May strike us as a little odd. Maybe as a little sinful. I mean, aren't we supposed to say all of our deeds, all of our righteous deeds are filthy rags? That even our best of deeds are mixed with sinful motives? Well, yes, in the right context, both of those statements are true. Yet, other people in the Bible felt comfortable praying like Hezekiah did. For example, Psalm 18:20, David prays, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Or Psalm 26:1, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. And I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. These are strong statements of being faithful to God. Or Nehemiah, the rebuilder of the walls in Jerusalem, prayed in Nehemiah 5.19. Remember, for, remember me for my good, O my God, and all that I've done for my people. In Nehemiah 13, twice he'll pray like this, and the book ends with these words. Remember me, O my God, for good. So how can these people be praying that they are righteous? Isn't this sinful boasting? Well, it very well could be. It could be boasting in how they have done all these good things. And yet, we have to consider the context. Earlier, Jerry read for us Isaiah 38, 17. And after he was healed, when he's giving thanks to God, in that prayer he says, For you, God, have cast all my sins behind your back. Or if you read in Nehemiah, you read the rest of David, you know, none of them are claiming I've lived perfectly all my life. My righteousness is earning your salvation. Rather, they're saying, look, in specific areas of my life, I actually have done what's right. In specific areas, I didn't sin. God, would you reward me for those specific acts of righteousness? You consider David. He twice was given the opportunity to put King Saul to death. And that he chose not to. He waited for God to give him the throne. Or Nehemiah, when he was given the governorship, was offered bribes. Yet he refused them. And then as well, he not only did not take bribes, he gave his own money generously to the poor of the land. Or here in our story, Hezekiah removed the high places that no king before had done. He faithfully walked with God. So if you come to the Lord and you're not boasting, but you're just saying, look, I've done these things right, there is nothing wrong with that. We really should... Note three things. First, we can do good works that honor God. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because Paul declares in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So he's saying, yes, your works don't earn your salvation. But then he adds, 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So yes, it's true that ultimately none of us is going to be able to come before God and say, here's my righteous life. You must save me. You must allow me into heaven. At the same time, though, that doesn't mean we don't do any good works for God. He has works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By the power of the gospel, through the enabling of the Spirit, we can do things that please God. Six times in the New Testament says this. One example, Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And he doesn't add, but you can't really please them anyways because you only do it in Christ. No, you can please God through Christ by doing these things. The second thing we should note about this is God promises to reward obedience. And in fact, that is part of faith. Hebrews 11, sometimes called the Hall of Faith, walks through various men and women who have lived faithfully for God. And before it, Hebrews 11:6 6 is talking about what faith is. And it says, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Faith says, if you serve God, He's going to reward you. It's not a faithful Christian to go, ah, you can do that, but God may never do anything to bless you for it. No, faith says, I know God is good and He's just, so if you do what's right, He will reward you for it. He'll be pleased by it. The issue is that we can't demand when God chooses to give His rewards. In His time, He'll give the rewards. In fact, Hebrews shows that often they were looking for those rewards in the future, not demanding them now. And the third thing is, it's not just in our relationship to God that we're imperfect people but can still please Him. That's true in every relationship. You know, no spouse can honestly say, oh man, everything my spouse does always pleases me. Or no parent says, oh, my, my children, or no children ever say, oh, my parents, they're just always perfect. They always do everything I want. You know, employer or boss or employee will say that about the other. Yet in each case, imperfect people can please someone. Thus, the point here is, you no, know, we shouldn't boast about our good deeds. We shouldn't become Pharisees that look down our nose and go, well, I thank you, God, that I'm not like them. No, that is sinful. But neither should we think, well, we can't do anything to please God. In Christ, we've been shown how to live in a way that will honor Him, that will please your Father, that He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. In this case, He is not sure, God, are you going to reward me now? Or are you going to wait till I come in glory? And Hezekiah is pleading, would you please reward me now? And then we see that God responds very quickly. So this is our next section. The second ambassador, the same one, Isaiah comes and we, need a, we see a pronouncement of extended life and mixed response. So our second section, pronouncement of extended life and mixed response. This is verses 4 through 11 because amazingly, Isaiah is not even out of the court yet. He's in the middle court and God comes and says, go back. Go back and talk to Hezekiah. He said, look, I've seen his prayer. I've heard him. And within three days, he's going to be better. He'll be in the temple worshiping. Not only that, 
He promises 15 more years of life that he'll deliver them from Assyria and he'll defend the city for David's sake. Well, Hezekiah then asked for a sign. Oh, is this good or bad? Well, normally it might be bad, but Isaiah 7, his father Ahaz was given a sign or offered a sign by God and Ahaz refused. So it seems here more of a normal situation. And the sign revolves around a shadow. And the basic issue, though the language is a little confusing, is will the shadow go the normal way it is or is it going to go back? In a normal day, you wake up and your shadow is being cast to the west as the sun is in the east. In the middle of the day, you have little to no shadow and then your shadow gets cast to the east as the sun is fading in the west. Whatever time of day it is, Hezekiah basically says, would you do the opposite of what is normal? And God, in His grace, responds. And I wonder if in this you're wondering, well, wait, God just said He was going to die. How can He now say He's going to live? Did God change His mind? Can we change what God wants? Nehemiah 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? As well, 1 Samuel 15, 29, And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And so these passages of Scripture are saying God will not change his mind. And yet, here... Hezekiah was told he was going to die, and now God says he'll live 15 more years. It's not just here, Jonah 3.10. When God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned away from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Or Exodus 32, you may remember after Moses was on the mountain, and down below they made a golden calf, and God said he would wipe out the people of Israel. And then Moses pleaded with God and asked for God to change. And then that happened. God relented. So we have these seemingly contradictory ideas. On the one hand, God does not change. He was always the same. And yet, these stories that seem to show God changing his mind. Well, what should we make of this? Well, first, in each one of those three passages that I've mentioned, you may have noted God told them what was going to happen, even though they didn't need to. And I think the reason God was doing that in each one is God was inciting them to prayer. God was trying to urge them to pray because he wanted them to change. And so God makes these seemingly unchanging decrees through prophets when he has the intention to stir people to pray to him or change their actions. Yet, if they won't, God will continue. And this is where a second, on one level, it can seem that God is changing his eternal decree, but in fact, he's not changing. Rather, God is allowing the immediate situation to change, but not his eternal plan. What I mean by that is consider the fact that God has said for all time, if people will turn from their sinful ways and come to me, I will forgive them. He has also said, if you turn from following me and pursue sin, you will be disciplined. That is his character. From that, he will not change. 
And thus there's verses like Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10. God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from an evil turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So in other words, God has made these statements that appear to our eye unchanging. And yet God is saying this to incite people to pray because his eternal character is unchanging. He wants people to change. And if they will do that, he will relent of the immediate forecoming punishment. You know, God has told us he is a being who delights to show mercy. That is unchanging. And there is really good news here. And that is what you do matters. More specifically, God allows our actions and our prayers to lead to real change. Now, this is not some mechanistic kind of view that if you give in this amount of prayers and you do these deeds, you do all this, then you get to tell God, okay, you have to do this. No, but God has shown that prayer really does matter. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1.9, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He doesn't just say, well, if God wants to deliver me out of prison, he'll do it. He says, through your prayers and the enablement of the Spirit, our prayers matter. Now, again, to be clear, our prayers don't determine what will happen. God is still God, and he determines what will happen. And so we pray, not my will but yours be done. But God is showing us that in his grace, he listens to the prayers of men and women like us. And so we should pray boldly. We should pray confidently. We should pray expectantly. That person you think will never change. God can change them. So cry out to God that he would bring revival. Cry out to God that a nation that laughs and delights in sin will come to hate it. Cry out to God that we would be praying people, that we would realize the importance of Him hearing our prayers. I entitled this section, Pronouncement of Extended Life and Mixed Response. But you may be wondering, well, how is this a mixed response? He prayed and he was healed. And then we read Isaiah 38, a song of praise. It seems like, Hezekiah was healed and he praised God. And yet, there's really three times in the Bible this story is told. Here's 2 Kings 20, Isaiah 38, and also 2 Chronicles 32. 2 Chronicles 32, beginning in verse 24, it says, In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Now in no way do these three disagree, but they're all giving different facets. If you were to try and put a chronological, what I think happened is Isaiah came, Hezekiah prayed, Isaiah returned, and at that moment, when he was healed, Hezekiah became proud. Then, 
When his proud led to his suffering, he humbled himself. And then we get the prayer in Isaiah 38 of his giving thanks to God. But we see of that pride here in 2 Kings 20, verses 12 and 13, the third section, the third ambassadors. Because now it's not an ambassador from God. It's ambassadors from Babylon. And we see presence and flaunting of wealth and power. So Babylon's king here, Hezekiah recovers, and so he sends ambassadors with letters and presents. Now, most likely, this is not just bedside politeness. Most likely what's going on is they're trying to set up ties so they can go against Assyria. And Hezekiah, he gladly greets his ambassadors, and he shows them all the glories of Judah. Verse 13 is really quite exhaustive. Silver, gold, spices, precious oil, his armory, and all that was in his storehouses. And if that didn't catch everything, it then adds everything that was in his house or his realm, Hezekiah showed them. Now consider what just happened. Hezekiah was just healed. And how and why was he healed? He was healed because he prayed. And because God was gracious. And why is the primary, what is the primary reason these Babylonians have come? Because he's recovered. And yet we don't hear a word of praise God. I was about to die. And I've been brought from the deathbed to 15 more years of life. Rather, let me show you my wealth. Let me show you my power. Let me show you what I've done. When just a few days before, he had two feet, two hands, just about everything in the grave. God is rightly jealous for his glory. And thus he declares in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. And thus, I think we're seeing here from Hezekiah a distraction from his prior God-centered focus. Now his focus is on his power, his wealth, his own glory. And we often live just like Hezekiah, for rather than pointing to God with our lips and our lives, we have a tendency to note what we have done, how hard we worked, that we can be anything we want to be. Now the point is not that you need to stick a finger up to heaven after every touchdown or after every good score on your math test, or every blue ribbon jam jar. Whatever form it takes, though, our lips and our lives should show, I was able to do that because God enabled me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And since God is rightly jealous to receive the glory, we read next in the last verses, pronouncement of death and response of silence. So we had Isaiah come as an ambassador for God to tell of death. Then Isaiah came a second time as an ambassador of healing. Then the Babylonian ambassadors. And now, again, the ambassador of God, Isaiah, comes to tell of coming judgment, of pronouncement of death. It begins in verse 14 where Isaiah visits Hezekiah and he basically says, Well, look, what just happened? Who came and visited? And he tells them Babylon. Well, what did you show them? And he, oh, I showed them everything. Doesn't seem to be any remorse. And while the Babylonians were surely impressed, and I'm sure Hezekiah was quite 
proud of everything, God was not impressed. Thus, through Isaiah, God prophesies that Babylon will come and take all that is in his house and all that the fathers had stored up for generations. Just as Hezekiah had left no item unknown, so God promised that no item will be kept. And now, not just physical property, though, his own sons will be made eunuchs and sent to serve the servants at Babylon. You know, this is a great tragedy. Isaiah just foretold that Judah's destruction is coming. You know, this is what should lead to lamentation, weeping, and prayer. Consider earlier in our story, that's exactly what Hezekiah did when he heard of his own coming death. And yet, rather than Hezekiah weeping, we read in verse 19 that he basically says, well, God's word is good. His exact words are, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? Now, as you read, people take different views on this. Some people say, well, look, this is good gratitude for the sovereignty of God. He is giving thanks that God has shown him. And while some take Hezekiah's word to be gratefully submitting to God's sovereignty, I believe the author purposefully arranged it to show his selfish fatalism. I don't think it's accidental that this story happens right after his own response of weeping and prayer at his own death. Thus, I think to hear the prophetic warning of demise for his people and to not go to God in prayer, to not weep, shows a very self-focused life. You know, Hezekiah is like us. We tend, as sin-ridden people, to think, well, is that going to affect me? Well, I don't care. Well, it's, it's not my house. It's not my hotel. Ah, who cares? I don't care about this stuff. It's not mine. And yet, godly people go, no, I am concerned about others. And more than that, what is Hezekiah's main role? It's to protect Judah. And yet it is his own sin, his own boasting that is leading to this downfall. Now I pray many things for our church and for myself, but one I often pray is, God, please don't let me be the cause of someone losing faith. You know, please keep me faithful because I don't want to be one of those pastors where someone goes, oh, and he's a pastor. Well, if he does that, is it even true at all? You know, it's one thing for people, for sheep to be hurt by the normal trials and burdens of life. It's another thing when the shepherd leads to the harm of the sheep. This is David's prayer, 2 Samuel 24. Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me. But again, isn't this Hezekiah trusting God's sovereignty? Isn't this good? Well, to think about this a little more, Consider our song of the month for May. We've been singing, Whate'er my God ordains is right. You know, that is a beautiful, true, and inspiring song of faith that God guides us, He directs us, He ordains every detail of our life. And yet, people can take true things and use them in good ways or use them in bad ways. In some cases, you may have heard people they're struggling with sin and they're battling. And they say to you when they've fallen again and they're in such grief and sorrow, they say, I find hope that God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And they cling to God's promise. 
And yet you may have known other people who as they live a life unconcerned about what God thinks and you bring it up to them, they say flippantly, well, you know, I just give thanks that God's faithful and just to forgive us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You know, it's the same phrase, but in one context, it's honoring to God, it's clinging to God and the other is hating God, going against God. And some people say, whatever my God ordains is right in a good and trusting hope of God's character to guide their life. And other people take those same words on their lips in a fatalistic, uncaring sense. A friend, family member comes to them and gently warns, you know, donuts at breakfast, hamburgers for lunch, and um, pizza and a milkshake for dinner, and your large waist, they're not going to give you a long life. And you really need to eat better. And you need to exercise. You know, you have children you need to look out for. And they go, whoop. It's pointed for man wants to die. Whatever God ordains is right. God's in control when he wants me to go. I'll go. Well, no, that's fatalism. That's not faith in God. That's not clinging to God's promises. That is using God's sovereignty as an excuse for your selfishness. You know, we see this really played out in Scripture, these two things. 1 Samuel 3, we see the prophet, soon-to-be prophet Samuel. God appears to him, and he tells him in a dream, I declare that I'm about to punish Eli's house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. And then Samuel goes and he's told by Eli, tell me these words. And when Eli hears him, he says, it's the Lord. Let him do what good seems good to him. And again, some people take those verses and go, oh, look at Eli's faith. He's trusting God. And yet we have examples of Moses coming down from the mountain, of Hezekiah here, where they hear these words of doom and they don't just go, eh, what will be will be. They go, let's pray to God. Let's cry out. Maybe he'll relent. And we see that same situation with David. 2 Samuel 12, 14, Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, because by this deed, the one with Bathsheba and Uriah, you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And you may remember that David didn't just go, Oh, man, that's horrible. Rather, when the child is born, he fasts, he prays, he weeps for seven days. Well, why? He tells us. Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious that the child may live. So we have these examples in Scripture where people are told things, and some go, oh, well, God, he'll do what he wants. And others go, no. God is warning us so we might cry out to him that we might change that we might pray so i hope on your lips you do say whatever my god ordains is right but in a sense of confidence and trust not in a flippant fatalistic well i'll just do whatever i want anyways and as we wrap up i think this portion of hezekiah's life is showing us two things first thing it's reminding us that the best of men are men at best. You know, as you go through, we read first Hezekiah, these 
promising statements. He's better than any king before him. He's just like David. And he comes in and he clears out the idols and he leads Judah back to worshiping God. And then though he's doing all these reforms, we need more than reforms. We need regeneration. We need to be new people. And Hezekiah, though he did many good things, he was not perfect. He was not sinless. And thus we have to be cautious. Whenever we see some great person who's doing wonderful things that we don't elevate them to Messiah-like expectations. They might be a great pastor. They might be an insightful counselor. They might be a courageous politician, a loving spouse, a wonderful parent. And yet we must remember the best of men are men at best. Our hope, our confidence is not in anyone on this plane. Our hope and confidence or in God, who sent not just a man to help us, he sent his one and only son. Second, though, wrapping up, Hezekiah reminds us, he warns us, that though things may be going well in our walk with God, we can never slack up. I began the sermon by telling of Plano's incredible rally, down 41 to 17 with three minutes to go, and they come back and they get the lead, 44-41. They're going to win the game, except they have to kick off. They kick off, and the ball goes down. All you got to do is tackle the guy, and they're going to win. And the guy makes a move. He gets some blockers, and he returns it all the way for a touchdown. They came back from 41-17 in less than two and a half minutes. They got the game, and they lost it all again. It's not over till it's over. None of us has won yet. We haven't crossed the line. So run the good fight. Keep pressing on. Don't look back. Don't look back at the day you were saved. That's wonderful to remember. Don't look back at all your years of church attendance or other religious things or the way you've done all this. Don't look back. Look forward. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking forward to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Fight for joy in Christ today, tomorrow, and every day until you hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you work in us that perseverance. Lord, it is easy to grow tired and weary. It's easy to rest on what we've done in the past. And yet, Lord, the world... Our flesh and the devil, they want to trip us up. They want to get our eyes off of you and on ourselves. So Lord, we thank you for these reminders, these warnings, that our hope is in Christ and that it's to him we cling and we run our race with our eyes fixed on him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.